Let's pray. God, your word says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And it says that while the word was in the world, the world didn't recognize him. And there was darkness, and yet the darkness could not overcome the word. Jesus, you're that overcomer. You're the one who overcomes the darkness with the light of your glory. And here we stand, basking in your presence, forever grateful. Lord, speak to us now by your word. Open our eyes and our hearts. Thank you for how you've already been speaking as we've worshiped through song and in prayer. And even in, in, in the sharing of the body life and the announcements and what's going on here at Cornerstone, thank you for your movement here by your spirit. And we call on you to keep moving for the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. Great to see you this morning. And some of you say, well, wait a minute, we haven't met yet. Uh, How can you say we're friends? Well, I I hope to be friends with you sometime soon. And really grateful that you've chosen to come to worship here at Cornerstone this morning. And let me encourage you, please turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 16. We're finishing up the Upper Room Discourse this morning, Jesus' sermon, great sermon on the night before he was betrayed, prior to his final prayer uh, that he'll offer and we'll study next week. Uh, But John chapter 16 will be in verses 16 to 33. And by the way, if you need a copy, we we love giving away Bibles around here. So let us give you a Bible. If you'd like one, uh, raise your hand. That would bless us. And we're we're confident that the, the word of God will bless you as well as you begin to read it. It'll change your life. Well, I've always loved music theater, and for many years, my job as a worship pastor allowed me to hang out in some really fun spaces where church and music theater could coexist. I led a team that wrote several Broadway-style musicals with with a gospel emphasis, and we had a blast every time we did them. Every time we do one, we'd get to the end, we'd we'd hear the the audience feedback, we'd feel the thrill of the orchestra and the lights and the set, and and we'd hear stories about God at work, And, and the whole thing had this kind of hate halo of transcendence all around it. (laughs) At least that's how it felt at the end. It was a lot of fun. But I got to tell you, the the process leading up to it was never without a significant amount of of stress, particularly during what we called production week, all right? Uh, Production week was the last week before the musical would open, and and, and inevitably, we'd always get to the same point where I'd be laying in bed with my wife, probably at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and I'd be keeping her awake, and I'd be laying there saying something like this, I have no idea why we're doing this. (laughs) It's too hard. It's so stressful. There's so much risk with the tickets. I don't know if we'll be able to break even. Uh, The sets and the lights. What if people don't like it? What what if it doesn't have the kind of spiritual impact that we're looking for? I'm I'm tired and I'm never doing this again. Hands down, I'm not doing it. And it wasn't just stressful for me. It was, it was stressful for our whole cast, everybody that we invited to be a part of it. We'd, we'd be up from early in the morning until late at night, and then we'd get up and we'd do it all over again. You who've been involved in music theater know how this works. It was stretching for everybody. But each year, I knew enough about what was to come that, that I could help the cast prepare. And so uh, I would tell them something like this, and as I told it to them, I'd also be saying it to myself. I'd say something like, friends, uh, production week is upon us. This next week is going to get really busy. It's going to be a struggle. There are going to be moments when that person that cannot remember their line is going to drive you nuts. There's, there's going to be moments when we've got to repeat cue uh, after cue after cue to get the light just right, and it's going to frustrate you. And I promise you, there's going to be a moment when you're going to want to quit and your metal is going to be tested in what we're doing. 
But if you hang together, and if you keep your eye on the prize, it's going to be worth it in the end. You're going to be so glad that you allowed yourself to go through the process. You just got to trust it. You got to trust the process. You got to trust each other. I'm asking you to trust me. And most importantly, you need to trust the Lord. We're going to make it through. And if you do that, you're going to be glad you did. And as I would share, some of them had been through it before with me and in other spaces, and so they, they knew what I was talking about, but others inevitably had no clue. And, and so I'm sure they listened, and, and yet uh, they didn't know what was coming to them until they were in it. And I could t- tell you several stories of crisis moments, and I realize a crisis in music theater is not the same as some other crises that have greater consequence, but, but one time we, we built these backdrops. We built like 16 different massive backdrops that would have covered the whole uh, back of our worship center. And they were beautiful, and they were ornately painted, and I was the one responsible for the dimensions, and when we got to the theater, not a single one of them fit <laughs> in the theater. It was bad. It was a crisis. I, I, was, I was about to lose a friend over it. Actually, I, I've kept that one. I got a text just this week. I was grateful for that. It reminded me of it. We had other crises where sound didn't work, lights didn't work, where somebody got sick, a lead actor, where, where things were just happening out of our control, and it was a stretching time. But here's the thing. See, when the audience was finally there, and the curtain opened, and the cast started doing its thing, everybody knew this is worth it. This is good. This was why we went through all the hardship. Artists were doing what they were made to do in the name of Jesus. And in those moments, we couldn't dream of doing anything else. Now, if you ask me after the service, should we do musicals like that here at Cornerstone? I'll say, absolutely not. We're not doing it, okay? So don't even ask. And yet, it was a joy. It was a joy. Don't put that pressure on me or on Nate, all right? And of course, music theater and theater in general is unique in its own right. The process represents a a human reality in in a variety of contexts, whether it's a football team going through the the two-a-day practices in the blazing August heat or or ballet dancers repeating the save movements day after day until their toes bleed or or, or a PhD student pulling off several all-nighters in anticipation of her oral exams or, or a farmer fighting drought in order to get to the harvest in order to feed his cattle and put food on his family's table. This is a common theme in our world and in our culture. Ultimately, we know that there's some struggle that's often involved to get from point A to point B, some struggle that's involved in realizing the benefits of what's on the other side. And and I would anticipate if I walked through the room and asked each one of you, none of us would really challenge that. We understand that struggle is a part of getting to the other, other side that good things are typically precluded by pain. The the question is not whether we're willing to struggle. The question is, how much? (laughs) How much? And toward what end? In in other words, is the prize worth the price? And it's with this struggle in mind that, that Jesus appeals to his disciples in the upper room. Remember, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what's about to come. He's, he's about to be crucified. He's about to rise again. He's about to ascend into heaven. And, and he's offered them some hope with the presence of the other counselor, of this paraclete, this Holy Spirit, whom he will send with the fullness of the Godhead to bring to bear in the lives of believers following his ascension into heaven. And he's instructed them on what it looks like to remain in Christ, to remain in the vine by the power of the Holy Spirit while Jesus is no longer physically present on earth. 
And last week, we came to this message where Jesus said, okay, you know that the Holy Spirit is coming. Now let me tell you what the Spirit is going to do once He comes. And, and we understood the Spirit comes to convict the world of its sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit comes to reveal the truth to the church, to all who put their faith and trust in Him. Well, now... This week, as Jesus comes down on the home stretch of his upper room discourse, it's, it's time to get down to brass tacks, okay? This is production week, if you will. This is, this is going to get intense. The story is written, the rehearsals are over, the set is built, the lights are hung, and here we go. This is going to happen. And as Jesus pulls the eleven in close, he sets the stage for what they're about to experience. He sets the stage, and this is what he says. John 16, 16 to 19, he says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? The disciples are confused, and so are we, right? <laughs> what, what does Jesus mean here? And, and, and commentators differ on exactly how to interpret. Uh, we, we grant that. Does in a little while refer to his ascension specifically, uh, to that time when he'll leave the earth to be with his father? Or does it, does it refer to his crucifixion, that time when he'll be dead in the tomb? Or does it refer to the whole thing kind of all amalgamated together? And although we can't be 100% sure, verse 16 gives us an important clue. See, Jesus says, in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you will. The plain reading is that this is a reference to the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection, which will occur uh, very literally in a little while. Within a matter, the, the events will start to unfold within a matter of just, just a few hours. Jesus will leave the upper room to go to Gethsemane where he'll, he'll pray and where he'll be arrested and then he'll be taken into the temple grounds area. He'll be tried and eventually he'll be crucified. All this happening within a matter of hours from our time where we're reading today. And then in a little while after that, in only three days, he'll rise from the dead when the disciples will see him again. And so I think this is a reference to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, on top of that, in verse 20, which we'll get to, Jesus speaks of the disciples weeping and lamenting, okay? which no doubt happened after Jesus' crucifixion. And then again in verse 32, Jesus speaks of the scattering of the disciples, which we see unfolding as Jesus is arrested. Everybody runs for the hills. And see, though weeping and lamenting are, are certainly a part of the early church experience, there's no evidence that the disciples were, were weeping and lamenting immediately after Jesus' ascension. And so the bottom line is this. I think Jesus is speaking of his experience at Calvary here. Okay? This is a Calvary experience. And because of Calvary, certain things are going to be true. Okay? Uh, we're at the point where Jesus is preparing his disciples for some things that are going to be really challenging because of the events that are about to take place. He's talking about his death and resurrection. Now that said, 
We know from the rest of John, and in fact, uh, the rest of the New Testament, that the Calvary experience does function catalytically or or processionally towards a whole series of events that include Jesus' ascension and even his subsequent return. History, as followers of Jesus Christ, hinges on the cross. Amen? That's a big deal. And so there is broader application than just for the disciples here in this moment. And yet it's helpful, it's important to understand the context in which the disciples are receiving Jesus' message here. Okay? Jesus wants to show them, hey, stuff's going to go down here. It's going to be really tough. It's going to be kind of bewildering to you. And yet it's going to be worth it. Trust me on this. Trust me on what's to come. Stay the course. And so this is the first thing that Jesus says to them in those regard, in that regard. John 16, verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. There it is. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. <laughs> Jesus says, look, it's going to get tough. I'm going to get arrested. Judas, who, remember, just left the party, is going to betray me. And I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be whipped and mocked. And you're not only going to have your heart ripped out of your chest when you see these things, you're also going to be petrified for your own safety. And so you, yes, will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. And the world around you is going to rejoice. They're going to think they've won. I mean, this is, this is the world that, that cries out when Jesus is on trial, crucify Him, crucify Him. The world is going to get what they're asking for. And when I'm gone, you're, you're going to think that everything that you've trusted me for, everything you've seen, everything you've witnessed, everything you've left behind to follow me, and remember the disciples left everything to follow Jesus, you're going to think it was all for naught. You're going to think it was for nothing. But I'm telling you, it wasn't. It isn't. It's going to be worth it. See, your sorrow will turn into your joy. In fact, because of Calvary, your sorrow becomes joy. I'm going to replace your sorrow with joy because you'll not see me, and then you will see me again. I will rise from the dead. And all the intensity of your sorrow becomes overwhelmed with the greatest joy that you've ever known. (laughs) And then Jesus illustrates. He's a great preacher. And he offers this amazing illustration. Listen to this, verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born, born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You moms know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. I was there in the room when my children were born and friends, is there anything more powerful than than a woman in labor and the subsequent birth of a child? What a powerful illustration. I I stub my toe and I howl in pain. You ladies, come on. Praise God for you. But the prize is clearly worth the price, isn't it? You'd do it all over again. Well, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe at this stage of your life you wouldn't, but... (laughs) No, you'd do it again. You know what's on the other side. And in the end, here you are, you're holding this precious little life with its cries exuding the life of God in it, in this child, the image of God. 
And your souls become immediately intertwined and everything in your life changes from that point forward. I mean, think about it. You grandmas who've had children a long time ago, think of how your life, the trajectory of your life has been absolutely wrecked in a good way and sometimes in challenging ways because of that little child that was in your arms. The prize is worth the price. Everything changes. Jesus says, that's what you're going to experience when I die. It's going to be tough. It's going to be painful. You will see me no longer. You're going to cry out in pain. You're going to cry out with the challenge and and the heartache that this world has in front of you. But when I see you again, it's never going to be the same. And of course, the disciples weren't. It wasn't the same. They went from being the ones who who tucked tail and ran at the first sign of adversity to, to being the ones who God used to build the foundation of His church even to the point of their own martyrdom. And I love Jesus' language in verse 22. He says, he doesn't say, you're going to see me again. He says very intentionally, I will see you again. I will see you again. Look at verse 22. Look at this. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Friends, consistent with his message throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus' resurrection glory comes to us by his own initiative, not ours. He says, I will see you again. Salvation is first by grace and then through faith in Christ our Lord. (laughs) Friends, let me ask, if, if a woman chooses not to go through the pains of childbirth, Will there ever be a baby in her arms to show for it? No. And I'm talking in a normative sense here. I realize adoption and all those things, and that's beautiful. But friends, if a woman's not willing to go through the pains of childbirth, there will be no baby. Of course not. In in the same way, if Jesus was unwilling to suffer through the horror of his crucifixion, would there be the glorious resurrection on the other side? No. Death comes before glory. Jesus prepares His disciples. This is going to be tough. But hang in there. The prize is worth the price. Because of Calvary, because of the cross and the resurrection, sorrow becomes your joy. But not just that. Look at verse 23. He says, In that day you will ask nothing of Me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Friends, isn't this beautiful? Verse 23, Jesus says, in that day, after my resurrection, you'll ask nothing of me. In other words, all your questions are going to be answered. Everything, even in this late hour that remains dim to you about the most important things in life, will come into light in the light of my post-resurrection glory. And it's not that they'll become omniscient. That's not what he's saying here, that they'll know everything all of a sudden all at once. But as Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, they're going to have everything they need for life and for godliness. They'll ask nothing of Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us, how much? <laughs> All things. A little, a little bit? A portion? No, no, no. 
all things, friends. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Friends, everything changes at the resurrection. Everything changes at the resurrection. We have what we need for life and godliness. And then Jesus continues with, with a familiar theme. He says, because of Calvary, your prayers become potent. Because of Calvary, your prayers become potent. Whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, says Jesus, he's going to give you. And of course, as we've said previously, church, praying in Jesus' name is not like using a rabbit's foot. Okay, It's not a good luck, get rich quick kind of engagement. Praying in Jesus' name means submitting to Jesus' will and Jesus' program, his, his agenda. It means praying according to his nature. And so if you're praying in a way that's antithetical to God's program, to God's will, you can be assured you're not praying in Jesus' name, regardless of how you phrase the prayer, okay? Uh, It's not a magic incantation, all right? It's a posture before the Lord. But when you do pray, and you're not sure if your prayers line up with God's program, to pray in Jesus' name is to submit to God's direction. Anybody ever go to the Lord and and say, Lord, I have no idea what this should be, but but I'm struggling and I need some help. (laughs) When we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, okay, God, I'm going to submit to you here. I don't know the outcome. (laughs) It's kind of like if I might pray that the Vikings would win a Super Bowl. (laughs) I might have a desire for that. But is that part of God's program? I don't know. Some of you are saying clearly not. (laughs) And so by praying in Jesus' name, I'm, I'm saying, God, this matters to me. This is my desire, but, but I don't know your mind on this one. And so I submit to you on it because I realize if the Vikings win, my Packers friends are going to be disappointed. And I don't know how to reckon with that, but I trust you with it. And so I pray in Jesus' name. I submit to your will. Now, notice what Jesus has said previously. He says, ask and you will receive I love this, that your joy may be full. He says, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. Church, the level of potency in our post-resurrection prayers means that when we pray in Jesus' name, according to Jesus' values, according to his nature, we can fully expect to be filled up with the joy of Christ. And if we don't have his joy, then it's fair to ask, How's our prayer life? (laughs) What what does that look like? Are we praying in Jesus' name or are we expecting without asking? And if we are praying, then are we praying in His name? Are we submitting to His will? Friends, when we ask in Jesus' name, Jesus says you're going to receive the fullness of joy, even in the presence of pain. That's why when we celebrated Dan Katnaw's life here this last Monday, we weren't at all bothered by the mixture of laughter and tears. Even during the service, the memorial service, we were laughing and crying in the same sentences. Because Deb, Dan's wife, and their kids, they know the Lord. And in prayer, they could be sad at Dan's passing, but also joyful in Jesus. 
Friends, hear me on this. Jesus never promises to remove all of our hardship. He just doesn't do it that way. He never promises that because we pray to Him, He'll remove everything difficult in our lives and make life easy. In fact, what we'll see later, this is not the case. But what He does promise is that because of Calvary, the potency in our prayers lead to the filling of us with joy. We can be joyful even in the challenges that are surrounding us. And then add to that this, verse 26. He says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Let's think about that. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. We'll talk about that in a minute. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus says, look, part of the potency of your prayers is this reality. Because I go to Calvary, I bring the presence of the Father to you. And though certainly Jesus is going to have an intercessory role in praying for us before the Father, Romans 8.34 makes that clear, praise God, Jesus does pray for us. He says, look, you don't need me to ask the Father for you. <laughs> because remember, you have direct access. You have the Holy Spirit who brings the Father to you. As I go to be with the Father, the Spirit brings the Father and the Son to you. You have direct access. You have an audience with the God of the universe. Praise God. And friends, what a beautiful reminder. <laughs> the initiating and abiding love of the Father does not become available to the disciples because of their performance. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No, the, the Father's love, the Father's life-giving presence is made available to the disciples simply because they believed. And that belief becomes the centerpiece of what Jesus did at Calvary. F.F. Bruce says of the disciples, thanks to their loving and believing reception of Him, they've received authority to become God's children, John 1.12. And as children... They have direct access to the Father with the confidence that He welcomes them and gladly attends to their requests. <laughs> Friends, because of Calvary, the disciples' prayers become potent, having direct access to the Father's presence and power and love. And this is amazing. But listen, J Jesus makes clear since things aren't going to be roses all the time. In fact, verse 29, his, his disciples, they're interacting with Jesus. They said, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Really? The, the disciples think they finally got it all figured out now. No, no more parables, no more metaphors. They think they've got it, and they get a little bold. And so, of course, they're right to believe that Jesus came from God, but they're vastly underestimating what's to come. They think they got it all figured out. Jesus says this, verse 31. He says, he answers them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come 
when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. See, it's going to get harder than what you expect. And so you, though now you cannot fathom the level of your abandonment, I'm here to tell you, you disciples will become tested. Disciples become tested in light of Calvary. And guess what? They fail the test. They run, they hide. They deny Jesus. They abandon Him in His most difficult moments. They fall asleep in Gethsemane. And church, this seems awfully tragic, doesn't it? That they fail the test. I feel a little indignant about that at first reading. Listen, it's all part of the plan. Leon Morris says, the limitations of the disciples' faith are shown and that they will shortly abandon their Lord. Their failure at the moment of crisis is faithfully recorded and has its importance. Here it is. The church depends ultimately on what God has done in Christ, not on the courage and wit of its first members. Oh my, I'm grateful. Because, church, because of Calvary, disciples become tested and they fail, leaving no room to think that, that it's anything uh, about us that causes us to pass the test. See, there is one pure and spotless Lamb. There is one God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one new and better Adam sufficient to make sacrifice for our sin. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I will be repeatedly tested as we live for Jesus. That's the reality of it. Our faith is going to be challenged. Our resolve to walk with Jesus will conflict with our own comfort and at times even our own convictions. There will be moments when we're asked to climb up on Mount Moriah with knife and wood and fire in hand with Isaac in tow and be willing to pay the ultimate price. And friends, there will be moments where we'll identify with those disciples who tucked tail and ran. There are going to be moments when we fail the test miserably. And it's in those moments where we'll look up and you know who we'll find? We'll find our Savior there. And the question for us will not be, hey, show me how you've earned this. It's not going to be the question. The question is, will you believe? Will you trust me? Will you receive my word? Because ultimately, it's only grace that carries us to glory. There is but one new and better Adam. And guess what? It's not me. It's not you. It's only Jesus. And yet, and yet, remember church, embedded in Jesus' message, is not pure fatalism. 
It's not, it's not a pure acquiescence to, to blowing it at every instance. Embedded in the gospel message that Jesus proclaims is this reality. The Christian life need not be one death after another. Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have the life of Christ made available to us and in us and through us. And so as we remain connected to the vine that is Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we need not remain shrouded under the shadow of the darkness of this world. On the contrary, we're invited to step into the glory of the resurrection, friends. The darkness does not overcome the light of Jesus. And in fact, the, the resurrection glory and uh, uh, God's program to invite the world into it will be the focus of Jesus' incredible prayer in John 17. I hope you'll come back next week. But for now, he says this. Jesus says this. And this is, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Gospels. i got a lot of favorite verses. You know that. But this is what Jesus says in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Jesus says in the world, tribulation, yes. Trial, toughness, pain, turmoil. And yes, you now live in that world, but I'm telling you, though you remain in the world, this side of eternity, you can also remain in me. <laughs> See, to be in the world is not antithetical to remaining in Christ. That's why He sends us the Helper. And because of that, Jesus says, I've said this stuff to you so that in me you may have peace. Now, this phrase, you may have peace, it's in a form that means that which is probable. Okay? That which is intentional or perhaps even that which is possible. And he's saying, look, I'm telling you this because of Calvary, in, in the light of Calvary, I'm telling you this because peace becomes possible. Even in a context where it seems improbable. In the world, tribulation. In me, peace. And friends, some of you today are, are hurting. Let's be honest about that. Some of you today are struggling. You, you just had your salary reduced, perhaps, and, and your retirement put on hold because you work at the clinic. Per perhaps you received a diagnosis that you weren't expecting and your health is in jeopardy. Perhaps uh, one of your kids dropped a bombshell on you that you never thought you'd hear coming out of their mouths. Or, or perhaps your marriage is so incredibly dysfunctional and the fight that you had last night lingered into this morning and you're still not talking to your spouse. That's never happened during Wisconsin gun season, has it? Jesus says to you this, and he's saying it to his disciples, but I'm convinced it applies to you. Hear this from Jesus. This is for you. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I have overcome 
the world. And friends, I'm sorry to tell you, but as long as you're looking for peace in the world, (laughs) in your circumstances, in your environment, as long as you're making the focus of your life trying to manage that which is out here and over here and to make this person say this and this person do that and this material thing line up with this and this job thing line up with your passions, as long as you're trying to manage the world around you so that you can have peace, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be angry. Did the disciples experience peace because of the resurrection? Of course, but it wasn't because their world changed. In fact, their circumstances actually got worse before they got better. In many ways, they became more difficult. The persecution that began with Jesus now extended to the whole church, the one in which they were responsible for planting. Uh, They, who were once simply drifting along as part of mainstream Israelite society, these fishermen, these these businessmen, they become spiritual revolutionaries with with physical targets on their back. Friends, their peace was not tied to their circumstance. It wasn't tied to the world. And yet they had it. And Peter could say this in 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Remember, Peter was hung upside down on a cross, crucified to death for his profession of faith. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. (laughs) Friends, some of us are angry at God because He's not changing our environment. We've been praying, God, I just want you to to, to make this different. I want you to bring this over here. I want you to tell that person to stop treating me that way. I want you to, to change my environment. And we're angry because we haven't been hearing our prayers answered. But what we're missing is the, the grace that our circumstances are affording us. See, all these things that are swirling around out here are teaching us that peace isn't found out there. It's found only in Jesus. It's found only in Jesus. And by learning to trust Him, by by learning to rest in His peace in the midst of trouble, He's preparing you for a weight of glory that far outweighs everything else. Jesus says, take heart, I've, I've overcome the world. Death could not hold me. The grave is not my master. Peace is possible in the aftermath of the resurrection. And if you remain in me, you will have peace. Will you trust me for it? Friends, I'm learning this. I I, I can be anxious with the best of them. (laughs) Just ask my wife. She hears all about it. But I'm learning to take Jesus at his word. And when I think back to those dear cast members who had no idea of what was coming, the ones who believed me had the best experience. Because when those long nights came, I warned them. And adversity showed up. They, they knew what to expect. Not to be comfortable, but to be satisfied. The prize was worth the pain. And church, I'm afraid that we've been selling ourselves too short for too long. In, in the church at large, and especially in the Western church, we've been selling ourselves a bill of goods. We've, we've promised ourselves that, that wealth and happiness and rest and all of these things are available to us if we just match up with God's program and God's kingdom. And that our world around us is going to be easier, it's going to be different, it's going to be better as long as we're with Jesus. 
Friends, I'm not convinced we're entitled to any of that. And I'm not convinced that our joy is summed up in any of those things either. What I am convinced of is that we are promised joy. We are promised peace. But that only comes by remaining in Jesus. It only comes by remaining connected to the vine. And everything that God allows us to experience, all the pain, all the trial, all the insecurity, is meant to drive us back into His loving arms and into the arms of the Father. Because, friends, that's the only place where peace is experienced, where peace is found. True peace, the kind that we want, the kind that we need. Friends, only in Jesus. And so let me reiterate his words. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray to our God, the overcomer. Lord, thank you for the peace that is available to us through your Son, now extended to us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Father, many of us have been kicking against the goads. We've been struggling to to make peace around us. Thank you that in your holy providence, you don't allow us to have the kind of peace that lasts as a result of our own production. (laughs) But instead, you teach us over and over that true peace is found only in you, only in you who have overcome the world. And so, Lord, forgive us for trying to seek peace elsewhere and draw us back to yourself. Church, I want to leave you with just a couple of moments in silence before the Lord to invite His peace to rest on you. And whatever you're struggling with, whatever fear, whatever anxiety, whatever anger, I want you to confess it to the Lord and be specific. And then I want you to invite Him to hold you in His arms, to remind you of His love and to rest in whatever he has for you in Jesus' name. Take a moment before the Lord. friends, when you're ready, I want to invite you to stand and simply hold your palms up before the Lord in front of you as a a demonstration of your willingness to pray in His name, receiving whatever He has for you, and as a demonstration that you're willing to make Him your joy above all else. Whenever you're ready, 
Go ahead and stand if that's the desire of your heart. so Jesus here we are palms open hearts open and we confess to you that the things that happen around us they hurt they are painful and our sorrow is real and yet our belief is that you are the overcomer and so in that we take heart ready to receive whatever you have for us trusting with all that we are, with every fiber of our being, that you will do as you promised. You'll lead us home. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So church, I invite you to go in grace and to go in peace, knowing that Jesus goes with you, knowing that the overcomer is available to you. And as we head into this Thanksgiving season, I want us to close in a slightly different way than we have before. We're going to sing the doxology. And we're going to sing it in faith, knowing that our God provides for everything we need. So Nate, would you lead us? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you soon.